Hi, I'm Derek Chalet, your host for this week's episode of Post-Pandemic Order, GMF's podcast, where we talk with the most interesting leaders and thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic about how this crisis is shaping geopolitics and our lives. I recently talked with an old friend of GMF's and mine, Yuri Luik, the defense minister of Estonia. Since Estonia's independence from the Soviet Union nearly 30 years ago, Yuri has been a central figure shaping his country's security policy and relationship with the United States. This is his third time serving as Estonia's defense minister, he's been foreign minister, and he's been Estonia's ambassador to Russia, NATO, and the United States. And Yuri played a leading role in negotiating Estonia's entry into NATO in the early 2000s. So there's really no one better to discuss how Europe has been grappling with this crisis and to put the current geopolitical uncertainty into context. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Yuri Luik. I think the the U.S., and European allies, they, they form this kind of uh, a center, a center of gravity, if you will, which could be very influential in the world if, uh, if it is united. Yuri Luik, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yuri, I'd like to start, if we could, with just giving us a sense of how the COVID crisis has been impacting Estonia. You know, one of the rare uh, attributes of this crisis, it seems to me, is that we've all been living with the same kind of disruption and threat at the same time, whether you're sitting in Washington or in Tallinn or in Warsaw or in Beijing, uh, all of us have been grappling with the ramifications of this crisis. So talk to me a little bit about how, to, how Estonia has been handling it and, and what the conditions are there right now. Well, obviously, this crisis was a great surprise to all of us, I think, all over the world. And uh, the peculiarity of this crisis is that it is global. And usually we are used to the fact that crises are regional. Right. And there are some countries who are affected and others who are not. And those countries who are not affected can then help the others. Right. Uh, in, this, in this case, uh, uh, everybody was affected. And, uh, of course, some of the issues like the protective gear and the surgical masks, everybody was lacking. I mean, that, that, that was a universal problem. Uh, when it comes to Estonia, we we entered this uh, crisis, of course, with uh, with a lot of confusion, like everybody else. There was the Italian example, which was already quite gloomy. Uh, but uh, in Estonia, I would say we started with with relatively few people who became ill, and uh, most of them actually came from other EU countries. Uh, Italy, Spain, etc., etc. So the first thing we actually decided, and this was a very difficult decision for a country like Estonia, who for tens and tens of years after during Soviet occupation had closed borders, and now we decided to close our open borders. Uh, th- this was a big, uh, big decision, but we decided that it's really the only view to preserve uh, some kind of isolation from from the virus. 
we then quite quickly developed uh, an understanding of some of the areas which were most affected, and we closed them. For instance, our biggest island, the island of Sarema, was heavily affected, and we just mm-hmm. we just closed the island, which again was a mm-hmm. difficult decision, but something we we had to do. We had quite strict rules about movement, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but they were not by far as strict as those in southern Europe. Uh, we we always had all all the streets were open, people were free to move. Uh, most most of the well well let's say restaurants were were allowed to work, but uh, of course since there were almost no quad clients, most of them most of them closed up. We closed the big. Uh, uh, big malls, which we saw as one of the sort of centers of possible uh, COVID uh, risks. And of course, cinemas and stuff, which almost all other countries did. But we did it all fairly quickly and fairly sort of decisively. So I think that was something which uh, which helped us. So that now we are, I would say, almost covid clean i think every day there is one one or two cases uh, we uh, we find uh, but not much more mm-hmm. so step by step we are now opening the borders we have something which we call the bubble which is the baltic states poland and finland which where the movement between countries is totally free and of course, now this bubble is being enlarged uh, step by step. So now there are actually very few countries in the EU where you, by entering Estonia, you have to go to the, to guarantee. But but basically, you can enter from any country inside the EU. But of course, EU has now made also uh, decisions regarding the countries outside the Union. And, and these these are also very complicated decisions, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, they've been obviously getting a lot of attention here in the U.S., given our status, uh, not still being able to get into the EU, which is, I think is understandable. So I'm just questioned, though, Yuri, was first, how has it affected this crisis affected the operation of the Ministry of Defense? I mean, clearly for all of us, this has been very disruptive in terms of our ability to to work. No question in the early stage of the crisis, uh, while you were trying to get it under control, I assume most of your employees had to work from home. Um, how, how has the armed forces had to adapt to the crisis and how, how have you managed it? Well, we, we had to make some very important decisions at the beginning. And uh, obviously one of them was the uh, regarding the operations of the armed forces uh, in Estonia. You know that Estonia has a reserve army, which means that uh, mm-hmm. most of our barracks are full of uh, conscripts. So the initial thought was whether we should send them home. But then we decided that uh, it is much safer when they are guaranteed in the barracks, go to exercises uh, outdoors but really do not scatter all around the country. Also, uh, you cannot disband your army. I mean, it's, 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 it's impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what was very important uh, for us was that the allies who are in Estonia, in particular UK and Denmark, who are now at this uh, EFP battalion task force, yep. they all decided to stay and to 
work with us to continue and to follow the rules which we proposed and which then were followed by all armed forces, either uh, both ours and, uh, and allied forces. We also conducted most of the exercises. We, we decided that being outside, we refigured the exercises somewhat. But uh, we thought that because of deterrent reasons, it would still be very important to conduct these exercises. The Allies were with us on the field. And uh, although the United States didn't uh, arrive with land forces, uh, U.S. sent uh, strategic bombers, uh, B-1s, which actually participated in our exercises and gave uh, air support to our brigades, which was pretty impressive, I must say. So using all those various tools, uh, we, we maintained our readiness uh, and our, our deterrent. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the ministry had uh, this difficult decisions to make as well. We, we tried to work uh, in a way that there, there were always one or two people from the, from the particular uh, division in the building. Sure. Uh, and the, most of the leadership uh, was in the building. We, we decided that because of the secure information we have to handle from inside the building, which we cannot really move, move anywhere, we, we had to be here. So we took a, a deliberate risk uh, to do that. But the majority of the staff was still in, in, in sort of home duty. Remote, remote work. Yuri, you're a former ambassador to NATO, and I'm also curious of how you saw NATO's response to the crisis, both operationally, and you talked about the importance of continuity of operations uh, with the enhanced forward presence in Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Poland, but also in terms of just NATO's operation, like decision-making operations. I think you've, you've held at least two defense ministerials remotely, I believe. And I think that's the first time there's ever been a ministerial held remotely. Talk to us a little bit about your impressions of what NATO's done right, perhaps some things that everyone acknowledges NATO needs to work on to better prepare for this sort of crisis in the future. Well, it's clear that this was also a big surprise to, to NATO. And uh, I think Again, considering all the circumstances, NATO leaders uh, found appropriate ways to cope with the crisis. As you said, we had uh, a number of uh, ministerial level meetings and actually everything worked, starting from the communications and the, the technical aspects of uh, having such uh, large meetings. Which is not easy to do it to is, get everything it, to work, it, as, we, is, as we've all learned. It is not <laughs> easy to do. There are a lot of nuances, which you know, <laughs> as well as I do. But uh, I think NATO obviously was not a primary organization to handle this crisis. Sure. And uh, I'm sorry to say the EU, uh, which which has a, has a more sort of stronger civilian arm, the fact that EU didn't uh, start up as uh, early as necessary was uh, was a problem. You know that countries closed the borders, and the border closing was done very haphazardly. Could have been more organized. Yeah, I, I want to get back to NATO, but why? What's why was the EU relatively slow 
Well, I think, I mean, this was not a pre-planned crisis. Sure. You, you know, when you work in the defense ministry, you practice for endless crisis situations. But this is something you cannot practice. The, this comes out of the a novel, a catastrophe novel. It's not something you, you can easily imagine. So I think at the beginning, everybody was a bit uh, confused. Uh, and of course, uh, EU doesn't have specific tools for medical emergencies, because actually this is all the responsibility of member states. Sure. For instance, we didn't have very good information about what is happening in Italy. Of course, we we all saw what was happening in Italy. Mm -hmm. But if the EU would have had, let's say, a medical team uh, flying in and giving uh, objective advice to other countries what they should do, that would have been quite helpful. This was the responsibility, this is the responsibility of the WHO, but they were extremely slow. And right. uh, they are influenced by some of the problems uh, which the United States has actually pointed out and which are real problems, uh, sure. uh, like influence of large countries, etc., etc. When it comes to NATO, of course, NATO tried to play on its strength. Uh, first, it was very useful that uh, armed forces all over the NATO's territory were actively involved in helping the civilian authorities. Mm -hmm. I think it was useful practically, but it also gave the defense ministries uh, kind of political clout or, sure. or visibility. Yeah. Uh, uh, because uh, with the military, there is always a risk that if it's a civilian crisis, there is a question, how can we help? What can we do? For instance, Estonia fielded its military hospital to the island, which I mentioned mm -hmm. about, which was most uh, affected. Uh, the Defense League helped the police, etc., etc. So we had, a, we had a lot of staff which was involved in, in trying to fight the crisis. And NATO itself, of course, Perhaps the, the most important part was that uh, NATO demonstrated its capability to act swiftly with over 350 flights for airlift support, hmm. airlifting uh, supplies around the world. And of course, as I said, uh, field hospitals, these were not directly NATO hospitals, but according to our, our statistics, allied 100 field hospitals were at play in various uh, parts of the alliance. And Yuri, is that is that continuing right now? I know early several months ago there was talk within NATO of you know thinking ahead as the crisis grew in Africa for example that NATO could be helpful there in terms of airlifting supplies. Well, uh, NATO is uh, currently preparing a more comprehensive plan to face uh, uh, similar crisis uh, health crisis. So uh, hopefully, at least in the autumn, we are better prepared than we were during this phase of the of the crisis. Of course, in the United States, these phases are li a little bit different than they are uh, in Europe. So, but but NATO is working on it, and uh, of course, NATO has to use whatever the tools are which we can provide. Mm -hmm. I mean, realistically, military can provide only so much. Right, but which was very important and, and for me a positive surprise, our military officers who 
daily work with uh, planning issues, strategic planning, operational planning, they were in great need in civilian crisis response headquarters because uh, it came out that if you need to respond to a major crisis, some of the knowledge which the military officers uh, have is, is well usable in civilian situations. And as we know, in the United States, it's often that, you know, FEMA operational leaders and other people are come from the military, have a military background. Sure. So that is that is not traditional here, but I think it was a it was a very good uh, experience. Yuri, I would like to turn, if we can, to Russia, because, of course, one of the, the the principal reason that NATO it was so important for NATO to show its ability to continue operations throughout this crisis in EFP in terms of decision making was to make clear that it was still fully ready to go and and that uh, NATO's deterrence mission uh, remained intact. And of course, Russia has been grappling with this crisis quite significantly as well and still has a long ways to go in terms of getting it under control. So I guess first, how you saw Russia, how you've seen Russia trying to take advantage of the crisis. Secondly, uh, particularly given the close proximity that Estonia has to Russia and, and your long experience watching that country, how you think it's grappling with it and, and what you're worried about in the in the days to come, whether it's in a, a traditional military context or also more sort of more broadly as this as this pandemic continues to take evolve in the coming months. I, I think it was extremely important that uh, the alliance made it clear from the get go that while we are dealing with enormous uh, emergency, the old threats have not disappeared. Sure. And uh, the, f- the fact that we have COVID doesn't mean that Russia has become less aggressive. So uh, what was very important for us was NATO's position that the basic deterrent capabilities, the basic principles of... Uh, Maintaining collective defense, Article 5, etc., etc., are well in place. Uh, Everything will continue, both the operations, uh, the deterrence activities. Of course, the exercises uh, were somewhat reduced. But as I said, uh, uh, countries found new ways, like the United States, new ways of uh, participating, like the B1s, or now a couple of weeks ago, U.S. Air Force was here with B-52s, mm. uh, so a, lo- a lot of uh, kind of Air Force muscle here, uh, which which I think was a good way of uh, of uh, indicating the that the deterrence is uh, still there and is intact. Uh, when it comes to Russia, then Russians, of course, from the get-go started to use this crisis to show that the West is weak and divided and is unable to uh, respond to this crisis. Uh, uh, They also uh, blew out of proportions the initial difficulties which we had in collectively responding to crisis and made a lot of these uh, show moves uh, uh, by providing uh, assistance to countries like Italy or even the United States. Later, it came out that 
the assistance to Italy was largely unnecessary. These were GRU officers who were providing the assistance, and they were more they were more interested in in traveling around the uh, Italian military bases than in in actually providing any any assistance. Uh, I I. I think we have managed to signal to Russia quite clearly that uh, we are strong, uh, we are united, and there is no way they can use this crisis uh, uh, to split us or to play around with uh, uh, military capabilities. Uh, so I, I, I don't see any imminent risk raising from this uh, COVID crisis. But of course, we should be very careful uh, both today and in the future, because after the crisis, where we will be facing an economic catastrophe, there will be a lot, lot of people who will say, we don't need so, so much defense spending now. We have to redirect these funds to social programs, supporting our uh, economy supporting our enterprises. Uh, so we have to be very careful here to maintain the defense budget uh, as as we have it, or preferably also, of course, to increase it if uh, if it's possible. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because you know, clearly the, the global economic crisis that all of our countries will be grappling with, and I don't think we've felt the, the full effect of yet, um, is going to put tremendous pressure on our security budgets. How do you think we should best handle that? Um, I mean, I think it's almost it's inevitable that, for example, the U.S. defense budget will go down. Uh, now, it will still be it will still dwarf every other NATO country's defense budget. You know, there's been a lot of debate here on the two percent of GDP of defense on defense spending within NATO. You know whether that's, of course, you know the current U.S. administration's made its frustrations with allied defense spending well known. Oddly enough, you could see that more countries hit the two percent GDP threshold as their GDP goes down and their defense spending stays the same. You could have more countries added to the list added to the list without changing much. But just uh, dr drill down a little further on that issue, because I think for, for defense ministries across the NATO alliance, it's going to be a huge challenge in the coming years to maintain this level of defense spending, given what's going to be a lot of people, you know, tremendous needs at home, people unemployed, uh, health systems under stress, uh, economies that are going to need a lot of support. Yeah, it, it is a big challenge, and uh, especially here in, in Europe. Uh, where I think we we started to to move on a positive trajectory in raising the defense budgets, uh, and uh, of course now we are we will be facing a lot of problems and a lot of resistance. Not so much here in Estonia. I mean, here we know very well why we are spending the the money for defense. So it's not something which is under enormous debate. Uh, but of course, in many other countries, in Western European countries, this will be a big challenge. Although my my good German friend uh, said something which you pointed out right now, finally, Germany will be moving towards 2%. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's what you have wanted. Now we'll Ex be doing it. Exactly. <laughs>
but uh, of course we have to uh, find new arguments uh, in explaining to the public at large uh, why it is necessary to uh, maintain defense budget. One of the arguments is obvious. It is that uh, the risks have not changed and the, the risks which are dealt by the military, uh, they are still the same. So uh, we, we should not let our guard down. Uh, second, what I'm always pointing out uh, is that the defense budgets usually support the economies of uh, sure. uh, various countries. It's part of the industrial and, base. Uh, it's part of the industrial base. Uh, it's, again, extremely visible in the United States, but so is it in other countries. Uh, with smaller countries like ours, it's more problematic because we buy most of our stuff from abroad. So it's uh, this is not the argument which always wins the day, but still, I mean, it's... Uh, we, we provide heftily to, to our economy. And third, uh, the crisis has shown that if there is a serious health crisis, you actually need the military to help out. You need the transport, you need the military hospitals, you need the military uh, doctors. Uh, a lot of the stuff which we prepare to face the uh, to face various military crises are actually very well usable uh, uh, during the civilian crisis. So, so it's kind of win-win. You, you, you get both uh, for one price. So, so I think uh, these are three best arguments I, I have developed in, in the, that situation. And there's another argument, certainly in the United States, and we're seeing across uh, Europe as well taking hold, which is the obviously the enduring threat from a country like Russia, but also the growing threat, military threat from a country like China. And I'd like to just ask you briefly about China because uh, NATO has said that uh, at the summit last December in London said that it would be examining the the growing challenge of China. The, the US and the EU, it was just announced last week that the US will accept the EU's invitation to begin a strategic dialogue on uh, the many dimensions of, of the China challenge. Uh, you, of course, have spent the bulk of your career in and out of government thinking a lot about your challenge to the East, the, the Near East, I should say to you. There's also the challenge <laughs> to the Far East, which is China. So just as this debate's taking shape here in the U.S., because I think uh, there's one of the rare places of bipartisan agreement within the security community here in the United States, is that we are we have returned to the era of great power competition over the next several decades. The threat from Russia, but principally China, is going to be one of the uh, most important security challenges the U.S. Defense Department will be needing to grapple with. Talk a little bit about how you think about that challenge and how we're going to have to need to balance uh, between these two uh, large countries that still, in large part, threaten us militarily? That, that is a very important question. Of course, for us, uh, due to our geographical location, Russia is clearly uh, uh, a potent military threat. There's no doubt about that. Uh, when it comes to China, then the issue is more multifaceted 
both for us, but probably for every NATO country, Mm -hmm. which is that uh, the relationship has uh, political aspects, military aspects. There are risks. There are also opportunities when it comes to China. I think we have to be very clear when it comes to risks and to to stand against them, like the issue of uh, uh, Huawei, sure. 5G, the, the communications uh, systems, uh, and a number of other challenges which, which we are facing with Russia, uh, which we are facing with China. Uh, and, and I think it's good that Europe, which perhaps doesn't have such a, a, a deep current relationship, with the uh, Far East, with with Asia Pacific, that we have now developed a dialogue with the United States and also Canada, who are both uh, Pacific Ocean countries and who have a very clear and current present policy, of course, the United States in particular, and current and present challenges uh, when it comes to China. Sure. I don't think this is necessarily an area of NATO as an organization. Of course, NATO can provide a forum for policy debates, but I don't know whether we can do something useful as the alliance. Perhaps we can. I mean, I'm not saying no. One of the issues we can sort of develop is really the issue of uh, technical expertise. I mean, when it comes to uh, the communication systems, dual-use equipment, uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of the stuff where we should be careful, but perhaps we don't know which these risk areas are. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily, especially smaller countries, we don't have the necessary expertise mm-hmm. uh, in facing those threats and uh, challenges. So I think NATO can work as a hub uh, for for that kind of uh, discussion, both political but also very technical discussions, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I I think NATO should also increase its situational awareness when it comes to Asia Pacific region. There are countries like Great Britain and France who, of course, often have naval visits there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think the whole alliance should be much more aware. Of that region and uh, and the the challenges of of that region because nowadays China is a global player so we are all influenced by what China is doing. In fact, Thailand and Helsinki are the closest EU capitals to Beijing. Mm-hmm. If you look at if you if you look at the globe, it becomes painfully painfully obvious. Sure. I know you're very busy and your time is short. I just have, have two uh, two last questions I'd like to ask. Sure, sure, sure. First, talk a little bit about what uh, your observations of the debate about the the importance of NATO to the United States, which which we have been having here. I should note that that public opinion polling, including a re- recent Transatlantic Trends public opinion poll that uh, GMF has released with other partners. Uh, shows that there's still a wide majority of support here in the United States for a strong NATO and a, st- and a strong U.S. role in NATO. But nevertheless, there's been a lot of questions raised, including from the president of the United States, about the wisdom of NATO, whether it's it's fair, whether the U.S. is is benefiting from it. 
um, you know, you're someone who's been involved with the transatlantic security relationship for 30 years, uh, even though you're still a young man. And, you know, just what I'm just curious, your observation on this and, and what what worries you about it? Do you think that what you're hoping to see uh, change, perhaps, because I think there, we were having a conversation in the U.S. about NATO that, in many ways, we haven't had since the end of the Cold War about whether, you know, whether the uh, alliance uh, is still worth it for America or not. As I said, I should I should note that the vast majority of Americans say that it is, but nevertheless, we have key leaders uh, who are questioning it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, obviously. For us, as Estonians, there is no question Mm -hmm. that NATO is an extremely useful and relevant organization. But one of the reasons of that uh, belief is that, of course, the United States is actively involved in this uh, organization. And I I somehow feel that uh, we have managed to maintain a degree of unity regardless of the various newspaper articles and, and, and perhaps various debates, uh, leaders using colorful language, uh, uh, not only in the United States, but also in Europe. You sure. remember President Macron declaring NATO brain dead, yeah. uh, something which didn't go down well in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, because obviously NATO is an organization which you can always improve as other international organizations, but there is an inherent usefulness uh, in this uh, body. And uh, for me, there are a couple of reasons why I believe it should also be important for the for the United States. One is the the strong transatlantic bond. Sure, uh, Europe is still the biggest uh, partner for the United States. I'm not talking about trade but also about trade. Mm -hmm. But the issue of being able to talk to nations who share your basic understanding uh, of uh, how democracy works, shared values, etc., etc., I think the the U.S. and European allies, they they form this kind of uh, a center, a center of gravity, if you will, which could be very influential in the world if uh, if it is united and if it it, it works well and uh, i think that is one of the important features for the for the united states when it comes to defense for instance united states obviously can take out any other country mm-hmm. when looking at your military capabilities but this is a theoretical capability mm-hmm. meaning that for instance if you want to conduct a stabilization operation, say, like in Afghanistan. The United States has no ways of covering the area of that size by itself. Mm -hmm. You need your European allies. You need them in Iraq, in other countries. You need them politically, and you need them in terms of humanitarian assistance and and other facets of policy which are necessary to to stabilize situation in various uh, countries where it needs our support or or our involvement. So I think these are very important aspects of uh, our relationship. And uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that because we need them, because these are 
important facets. The political turbulations uh, would not destroy their lives. Yeah. I mean, it, it might be occasionally frustrating, but uh, NATO has survived many other political fluctuations uh, throughout its history during the Cold War in the 60s, in the 70s. Uh, there, there was a lot of stuff which today we have perhaps forgotten, but at that time it was seen in equally dramatic uh, light. Yeah, in many ways, the the history of the transatlantic alliance is a history of, of its crises. Exactly, <laughs> because we can look back at almost any point in our history and and find ourselves in a state of crisis. Also, just to really circle back to where we began, I mean, as we were talking at the very beginning about the the unique nature of this pandemic, with the 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 simultaneity of it, in the sense of there's really almost no corner of the world that hasn't been touched. And certainly in the transatlantic space, we've been dealing with the same kind of security, political, economic, and health threat at the same time is a reminder that we are all in this together. You know, our interconnectivity is so vital. One last question uh, before I let you go, and that's that's thinking more broadly, not, not just not about security, but you know, you're someone who going back to the early 1990s uh, when uh, you, were, you were working alongside the great Leonard Mary, uh, have been part of Estonia's post-Soviet democratic evolution. And we're living in a moment where in many parts of the transatlantic alliance, there's a sense that democracy is in crisis, that, that whether it's because of lack of trust in our governments, uh, lack of faith in our electoral systems, efforts by foreign adversaries to manipulate information and sow doubt and division within our countries, perhaps incompetence by governments and how they've handled this pandemic. I mean, there's just a growing sense of, of democratic crisis throughout what was once called the West, we'll call the transatlantic space. I'm just curious if your thoughts on that as someone who's really been you know, this has been part of your basically life story, you know, coming out from behind the Iron Curtain and helping helping a great country, Estonia, uh, build a thriving democracy. You know, you don't have to look very far around your neighborhood to see challenges to democracy. Just curious about how you see this moment and, and how you see the challenge before us. It, it is a complicating, it is a complicated uh, time in our democracy. And of course, because of what you said about my own personal history, I'm of course saddened that we have uh, reached that, uh, I might say, low point. I wouldn't say democracy is in crisis because, again, I believe that the fundamental principles of democracy are still appealing to people, which is personal choice, uh, personal freedoms, Perhaps they cannot phrase it in a way that uh, would would respond or correspond all, all around the society. I, I think the political elites have become quite isolated. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the European Union, I would say that the minister of one country and the minister of another country have more in common yeah. than perhaps the minister and an ordinary citizen from its own country. So there is this political class which even speaks in in tongue, which is not often understood by others. 
so I think it is very important to understand that the crisis is not created only by the radical forces. The radical forces often utilize the crisis. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways they utilize it is to uh, so-called to tell the truth, quote unquote, which is to speak to people in in terms which are understandable. Now, you might not like what they are saying, but at least you understand what they are saying. Mm -hmm. They can bond with their own supporters, with their own electorate. Mm -hmm. So I think the, this will be a challenge. This is a challenge for the whole political class to find a to find a common language with the people and to understand that democracy has to be written every day again and again. You you cannot be content with the glorious history of uh, democracy, its uh, famous faces. Uh, you have to understand that democracy needs constant education. It needs constant uh, explaining. It needs constant perspective to the future because societies change very quickly yeah and we we sometimes miss that the the current age of mass communications is entirely different from how the democratic societies worked even 10 years ago yeah the uh, mass communication means provide a potent weapon for the radical groups they are very adept at using and uh, we haven't often found a way to to respond to that. But we we shouldn't uh, wallow in uh, kind of uh, sadness and, and pessimism. Uh, I think it would be extremely important that the political leaders of democratic societies maintain their belief in the future, their readiness to to talk to their own people and to carry them, to carry the ideas. To them, because sometimes, again, for us, something seems entirely logical because it comes from the technical expertise which we possess, mm -hmm. but which the population at large necessarily does not possess. So the question of how you bring these ideas to the people is challenging. And what is also challenging is that the new leaders have often either not lived through the Cold War or do not have the understanding of what the Cold War was all about. Mm -hmm. So some of the basic truths, quote unquote, uh, like democracy is better than totalitarianism, uh, they are not ingrained in the blood flow of, of these leaders. Some of the very simple and primitive things uh, should be uh, reminded again and again. I mean, all in all, I'm saddened by the fact that we are facing uh, such a challenge to our democracy. But I do not believe by far that we are losing this fight. We should simply understand that the society is changing and the democracy and people who carry the democratic ideals should change with it. Well, Yuri, that's a terrific note to end on. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to to be with us today. I, I know our listeners will benefit greatly from your wisdom. And I want to thank you for 
your many, many years of service uh, to the transatlantic relationship in and out of government uh, at NATO, uh, in Estonia, and in the in the world of research and think tanks. Yuri Luik, you're a good friend, and, and thanks for taking the time to being with us here. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thank you very much. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.